0: My concern is all the kids that are left behind. And we can't, it doesn't solve the problem. What's going to happen to my children, my own children, as well as my students, if there are no teachers um, to teach them. So that, I just wanted to throw that
1: in. Yes, all right. Well, unfortunately we're out of time. Thank you so much, Adam. And thank you so much, Brita, for joining us on KBOO. Uh, I also want to thank our engineer. Thank you to our audience for tuning in. Um, This is Stephen Siegel. You've been listening to Labor Radio. Tune in next Monday and every Monday at six o'clock Pacific Standard Time to catch another Labor Radio show. You are listening to KBOO, Portland, Oregon. 90.7 90.7 fm on your portland dial kboo.fm on your everywhere on earth internet dial stay safe
0: stay sane stay tuned KBOO, the best in community radio
1: baby you understand me now If sometimes you see that I'm mad Don't you know no one alive can always be Greetings and welcome to Prison Pipeline, airing from the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm your host, Adam Carpinelli. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. And today we're here with Eddie LeSure, an Attica brother. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, Adam, and thank you for having me. Well, appreciate it. And probably
1: some people listening might not know what that means to be an Attica brother. So Please elaborate.
0: Well, what it means is I'm a survivor of an uprising that happened in Attica Prison in upstate New York uh, just a little bit over 50 years ago. I was an inmate there as a result of an arrest on a drug situation, and I was sent there. And Attica is a maximum security prison that housed about uh, 2,300 inmates, and in the prison Uh, There was, over a period of time, an increasing tension and frustration about the way that we were being treated. And as inmates were making an effort to reach out to the outside, to organizations like the National Lawyers Guild and various congresspeople and senators and whatnot to try to address horrific conditions. And honestly, a lot of racism. The majority of the inmates were black and brown. All the guards were white and uh, so it got really bad and then there was just a spark that set off this uprising on September 9, 1971. About half of the prisoners in the facility took hostages. There were, I think, 38 hostages, as I remember, and held them through the 9th, the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, and the 13th. There were negotiations with the Commissioner of Corrections, and uh, there were outsiders that came in as observers, including William Kunstler, who was a very famous activist attorney at that time, and others. And finally, Governor Rockefeller decided he had had enough. He was not willing to be viewed as a political figure who would submit to the demands of convicts, as he saw them. And uh, he sent in the state troopers, the National Guard, with guns blazing. When all was said and done, 39 people lay dead, including... 10 of the hostages because they just went in and indiscriminately began shooting with rifles and shotguns and then a lot of people were injured and afterwards a lot of the inmates, especially the ones that were active as spokespeople, were systematically tortured and abused over the period of months and then charges were brought against the inmates and even though there was basic murder that took place by the state in retaking the prison, none of those who fired the weapons were held accountable ever. And I'm an Attica brother because I was there. I was 23 years old at that time. So quick math, I'm 73 years old and uh, I'm a survivor. And there aren't a lot of us left, but I'm here to tell the story of what happened and why.
1: Well, thanks for sharing the stories. And again, another amazing piece of, of history for U.S. history and, you know, for the world too. Within that historical context, there was so much going on in the late 60s and early 70s, right? I mean, just kind of rhetorical statement there. But can you also help to kind of put that in context? Because it definitely shaped a lot of it, I would imagine.
0: Oh, absolutely. So among those of us inside prison, there was a continually rising political consciousness and radicalism. Uh, in the late 60s, of course, you had Malcolm X, and you had Martin Luther King. You had the Black Panthers, who were playing a very significant role within the African-American community. You had the Young Lords Party, uh, which did the same thing in the Puerto Rican community, which was, of course, very active in New York City. And you had uh, you know, organizations among predominantly white individuals like SDS and, and the Weathermen, who were more extreme. All this stuff was going on. The Vietnam War was happening. There was the civil rights movement, the women's movement. All these things were happening. And within prisons, uh, you had people like George Jackson, who was at uh, San Quentin. He wrote a book called Soledad Brother. He was a political activist, and uh, he was killed inside prison. And when all of these things happened, prisoners continued to become more and more aware that In a sense, they were in prison because of the political environment, the economic situation in this country, and they saw what was happening as sort of an anti-imperialist, from an anti-imperialist perspective. You know, there's an old saying, the rich set the bail and the poor go to jail. So the majority of us in there were incarcerated because of drug uh, offenses, either directly arrested for drugs or crimes committed as a result of drugs, you know, stealing and and, and violent crimes and so on. And of course, if you study history, you understand how drugs have been used, particularly within, among people of color, you know. So they understood these things and there were conversations going on inside and there was dialogue between members of people who identified as Black Panthers and Young Lords. And there was a very prominent white inmate named Sam Melville who was sent to prison because of crimes that he committed against the state. He, he was labeled the mad bomber. And I knew Sam very well and he was anything but mad. He was calculated and he was angry and he took action. And so he's there. And so all of this stuff was happening inside prison. So when the uprising happened, one of the things that the prisoners understood was that they had to come together you know, the old divide and conquer rule. When I showed up to Attica and I was, went through my initial interview with the deputy superintendent. Superintendent is just a euphemism for warden, right? One of the first things he said to me, and those who are listening can't tell that I'm Caucasian, right? So he said to me, listen, you need to stay away from the blacks and, and the Latinos. In fact, I don't think he called them Latinos. He just says, you just need to stay away from the blacks because if they want to hang out with you, it's only for the wrong reasons. They're just trying to get something from you. You're going to regret it. Best stick with your own kind. So right there, he's trying to separate and divide and create, you know, fear. And we saw through that. And when one of the things that was key is that black, brown, and white prisoners and Native American prisoners came together and coalesced when the uprising happened and said, listen, we're going to make demands. We're going to stand together, make our voices heard, and let the world know that when you oppress us and keep pushing us down, we're going to fight back. And one of the slogans that came out of that whole event was Attica means fight back.
1: Right. And People are still fighting today for prisoners' rights and, and, and inside. and you
0: know. Not a lot's changed, Adam. You yeah. go into Attica now, if I went back there, God help me, if I went back there today, it probably wouldn't be much different than when I went in there in November of 1970.
1: Yeah, can you talk more about how those things were crystallizing and and kind of what what that organizing looked like kind of leading up to the yeah. the main, you know, the main events if you will to the uprising.
0: Well, one thing that's helpful is if uh, to understand is that as a maximum security prison, Attica was actually four prisons. There were A, B, C, and D yards, and everything was very segregated. So, Adam you could go in and be housed in A yard and your brother could be in B, C, or D yard, and you wouldn't see them for years, you know, because you're so separated. Well, one of the things that happened is everybody has a job when you go in there. And I was, uh, my job was in the school. I was a teacher. That's because I had some college background. Well, the school was actually kind of a, a, like a correspondence, it was a cell study thing. So people turn in lessons, I correct them, send them back, they work in their cell, they send them back and so on, because we weren't meeting in classrooms except for two classes one was a language class that was led by this guy from france and the other was a sociology class that was set up as a showpiece by the warden because one of the guys in there had taught at skidmore college he was actually a sociology professor and he had gotten busted on a drug rap and so they said oh we'll set up a sociology class in a classroom well what happened is This enabled prisoners from the different yards to come together. So your brother, for example, or that Black Panther leader who's in B yard and the young Lord's leader who's in C yard and this guy in A yard, all these people who were doing all these things could come together and sit in a classroom with no guard because it was supposed to be a sociology class, right? and sit and have conversations about, hey, did you get so get to so-and-so, and what's going down in B-yard, and what happened to here, and how come they beat up this guy, and, you know, all the stuff that's going on. So when the uprising happened and everybody's out in the yard, automatically there was sort of a, a cell, if you will, or a group who had already been communicating. You also had black Muslims in there. And back 50 years ago, Black Muslims didn't view whites the same way they do now. We were the devil. And yet in that room, in that, in and by the way, I the sociology class got assigned to me because that other guy, his name was Bill Coons, he got paroled. So they put me in charge, right? In that class, Black Muslims looked at me as their brother. Out in the yard, they wouldn't talk to me, right? Because they had to keep up an image, right? But in there, we were brothers. so we fought through that division and saw our common cause. And this was essential to staying together, standing shoulder to shoulder in the yard and holding, holding to those demands and not buckling under.
1: So that was kind of one of the early impetus of, of the organizing. Yeah. Was there was the consciousness, there was the opportunity to, for people to actually congregate and study.
0: It was part of it that it wasn't all of it, but it was part of it. I mean, there were a lot of conversations going on among inmates, and, and and it was a product of the times. You know, I mean, look at the way the Vietnam War ended. The Vietnam War ended didn't end because people wrote their congressmen, right? It's because of hundreds of thousands of people marched in Washington, people of all kinds, and said the war has to stop. You know, the Civil Rights Movement happened because people came together and took action and I think that's one of the takeaways from Attica and so many other events that happened is we break through the differences, we find a common cause, we figure out what kind of action we can take. You know, and you don't sit around and wait for the government to fix things. You know, you don't wait for politicians to make things right. You know, I mean, we have to do it ourselves. That's my personal opinion. You know, we have to stand up for what's right. So can
1: you talk a little bit more about what led up to the, the uprising? And then from there, actually just talked about kind of the nuts and bolts of what happened. I'd love to hear if there's any, even if you have any particular memory or anecdote that just has always maybe stuck out for for you or, or with, or, or, you know, amongst various folks you were involved with.
0: Well, leading up to it, I mean, I've already talked about a lot of the things. I'm not, I'm not sure what else to add. I mean, uh, you know, as I reflect back honestly adam i have a lot of bad memories you know and going through this commemoration that recently occurred by the attica is all of us committee which i know you want to highlight it was difficult for me because uh you know it put me right back in there and i had and i had re-experienced a lot of trauma i was subjected to beatings and threats and um yeah, you know, it's, it's not always easy to talk about, but I, w- I will say this for full transparency, I was not actually in the yard. What happened was, and this is a bit anecdotal, I was involved, because of some of the organizing I was doing, the warden got wind of it and threw me in what's called punitive segregation, or is commonly referred to as the box or the hole. So I was thrown in there about three weeks prior to the uprising. So I was actually in there when everything happened. And it was afterwards that they pulled me out and then I was subjected to um, to the physical abuse and, and the mental, and I ended up actually spending five months in, in the box total. And then they tried to interrogate me and, and everything. But here's an interesting story, so I go, they, they bust me, right? And they I had to like a trial. So I go in front of the warden, or actually the assistant warden, and they said, okay, they wanted all this information. What's going on? Who's doing this? Who's doing that? And I wouldn't tell them anything. I was really uh, full of myself and just very defiant. And he says, well, I'm going to give you 30 days, punitive segregation, 30 days, loss of good time. And he says, what do you think of that? And I looked at him and I said, 30 days? I can do that standing on my head. And he said, well, I'll give you another 30 to do standing on your feet. That'll be 60 days. You know, sometimes I've got more guts than brains, Adam. But, uh, but that probably saved my life because when they came in with the guns blazing and the assault, uh, they very clearly targeted certain individuals like Sam Melville, who I spoke of earlier, they made sure he was dead There was a young man by the name of L.D. Barkley, a young African American man from Rochester, who, if you go back and watch videos uh, that came from that event, he gave this really fiery speech. And I'm sure that was, that signed his death warrant. They made sure he was dead. And the people that they feared most were those who could cross racial boundaries cross-racial lines, particularly whites who had the respect of blacks. And so because I was able to connect and uh, earn respect of uh, prisoners of color, they feared me probably more than they really needed to because you know, I wasn't really a flaming revolutionary. I was just a kid who was really pissed off and wanted to try to do something. But in their eyes, I was dangerous, so they probably would have targeted me for assassination when they came in with the guns blazing on September 13th. So maybe my smart ass, you know, saved my life. You never know. I mean, when you talk about what happened during the yard, this is a very involved conversation. And I I invite people to go to the Attica Is All of Us website because there were panels, there were events done, there's interviews, there's a lot of information. If they really want to know what happened 50 years ago, that's the place to go attica is all of us dot i think it's dot com uh just google it uh for folks tuning in
1: you're listening to prison pipeline airing from the studios of kboo portland we're here with eddie lasher an attica brother survivor of the attica uprising and yeah th- so we're commemorating attica uh here in 2021 uh, it's been 50 years and it's this vivid memory for, for many people who are the obviously the survivors, including yourself. But also it's uh, seems to continue to be this, uh, if I can call it maybe a beacon of hope in, in some ways, the, the symbolism uh, around that for uh, community organizing and the way it, it, it obviously sticks out because it's one of the, I mean there's plenty of different examples of historical prison. Uprisings and insurrections, if you will, Attica being one of, one of the, the most well known. But there's still far and few in between, and it seems like that that still resonates a lot for people. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you, what do you think about that, and how, how is that reflected in in the commemoration committee's work um, in the last year or so?
0: Well, I you know when we did our panels that uh, were, were part of the commemoration, the events that we had last week, one of the brothers summed it up very well. And he said that there's no doubt in his mind, this is gonna happen again. Conditions have not gotten any better. And, you know, you can only oppress people for so long and treat them like animals before they finally take a stand and say enough is enough. And here's the deal. It's not just the inmates who suffer, you know, it's the employees in the prison. I mean, it's hard to find, from some perspective, it's hard to find sympathy for the guards But not all the guards treated us badly. And there's other employees. Let's remember, 10 of the hostages were shot to death. So it creates problems for everybody associated with the prison system. Plus, when we get out, you know, we've never been rehabilitated. I went into Attica on a drug charge. There was no program for drugs, nothing. AA came in and held their meetings, you know, but you know, there's no rehabilitation in most of these facilities. And you don't come out with skills in in many cases that they, you know, they don't provide programs in most places. So you come back in the community with the same problem, the same conditions in the community that created the problem in the first place. So it just keeps going on and on and on. And the families suffer, the whole community suffers. It's a huge problem. And I don't know the numbers, you can look them up. But I think we have the highest proportion of our population imprisoned than any company any country in the world. You know, it's it's crazy. And it doesn't work. And then more and more prisons have become privately owned. And and one of the problems is the the, the prison uh unions, you know, they stand in the way of progress being made because they They'll send the message, well, we're just coddling these guys and these women, because remember, women are in prison, too. So, you know, it's a huge problem. And for most Americans, they just shut it out. But we're coming back in the community. Fortunately, when I came back out, I was eventually able to address my—I mean, I was shooting heroin before I went in. I didn't shoot heroin when I came out. That's no thanks to the prison system. That was work I had to do on my own, Right. But if I hadn't addressed that, I'd be out there doing the same thing that I went in. So it's not like it's out of sight, out of mind, because we're back out in the community. And, you know, the problem persists.
1: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how that affected people's incarceration at that time? You know, there was this this uprising, this amazing event. It was national, international news. And then. And then, you know, people continue to serve their time. Um, what might be some some follow up in your case and or other, other people you might have still uh, kept in contact with, for example? Yeah.
0: Well, one of the big things is we're all traumatized, you know, and trauma is something that doesn't go away. And I was unable to really find recovery from addiction until I addressed my trauma. So people coming out, they live with trauma, you know, And I think probably a lot of the people that work in there also get traumatized. So that's one impact that happens. You know, certainly some prisoners come out with more political consciousness and they get involved and, you know, they um, somehow do something positive. But the rate of recidivism is really, really high. So a high percentage of people who come out just because they weren't really rehabilitated and they come back in the horrific conditions that they were in, and they end up just going right back into prison. So one of the things that people can do is try to help prisoners who come out address trauma. You know, get trauma informed intervention. Also to f- help them find jobs because of the stigma of being a felon. You know, I'm a felon, but it never it never stood in the way of me being able to support myself when I got out but it could have easily. So help help these people get trained, help these people get medical and psychological help, help them find jobs, help them uh, integrate into their communities in a, in a healthy way, help their families when, when they're in prison, help provide support to the families so that they can manage while perhaps their primary source of income is gone, you know, address this at the community level while at the same time pushing for reform and changes inside the prison you know i'm not currently involved in organizing i'm doing other things as i found recovery i eventually became certified as an alcohol and drug counselor i'm a meditation and yoga teacher so my focus is trying to help people break free from the cycle of constant relapse in addiction which of course is It's a huge problem, you know. The opioid crisis, I think people, you know, you got to be blind not to know how how bad that is. So that's my focus. That's how I feel I can try to help people on an individual or a group level. So I'm actually doing prison organizing myself, but there's a lot of it going on. And if people want to know how to get involved, go to the Attica is All of Us website. And there's a lot of organizations involved. Look in your community. Adam, I know up in Portland, there's stuff going on up there but give a damn, give a damn.
1: Right, and it looks like there's a pretty easy way even for folks to join the coalition too if they're yeah. with the other organizations. Actually, when you look at, at the list, and again, the website is atticaisallofus.org. And when looking at the website and the list of coalition partners, which I'm sure helped to build that, that amazing event that you were talking about, it's almost like the kind of A-team of everybody who's doing really amazing work Around you know, mass incarceration, prison industrial mm-hmm. complex, political prisoners, prison abolition. And I know you, me- you mentioned that you had intersected with some really amazing people in there too. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I want to give a special shout out to the National Lawyers Guild. Okay, there are a lot of organizations that have really stepped up, but the National Lawyers Guild going all the way back to the uprising 50 years ago has been a huge, huge player in this. And there have been others as well, but especially them.
1: Absolutely. And that's that legal support that people need so much to, in a lot of cases, there's just so many cases that are just really dependent on having that proper legal team or legal support. Yeah. Um. And, you know, and it, and it costs a lot of money. So when there's people who are able to to take their time to, to help with that process, you know, and again, legal, legalese is just... Completely, you know, confusing for most huh. people. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't study law, so so that's great. So again, people should uh, check out uh, the Attica Coalition. The website is atticaisallofus.org.
0: Do I have time to mention a couple books they can read? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. There's a book that came out about three or four years ago by Heather Thompson called "Blood in the Water." Now I don't make any money off this. Okay, I'm. Not- This is Educational, Blood in the Water by Heather Thompson. Really good book. Another book just came out by Josh Melville, who's the son of Sam Melville, the political activist who was murdered during the uprising. And, oh boy, the name of it, it's right on my shelf in the other room. It's called American Time Bomb. American Time Bomb, Josh Melville. And it's a great story about... Uh, this journey of understanding his father and and how he his political journey and how he ended up in Attica and what happened in there those those are really good books there's some older books there's one called A Time to Die by Tom Wicker who was a New York Times columnist or reporter that's quite good but uh, educate yourself learn what happened it's my advice
1: Right on. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline airing from the studios of KBO Portland. Listen to this and previous Prison Pipeline programs at kboo.fm slash prison pipeline. Like Prison Pipeline on Facebook. Thanks again to our guests and also Prison Pipeline member Karen James for helping with technical support. Free them all. They won't build no schools anymore. All they did I don't care to KBOO Portland on ninety point seven FM, K two eight two BH Philomath on one hundred four point three FM, and K two two zero HR Hood River on ninety one point nine FM.
0: KBOO Community Radio is hiring for a Web and New Media Coordinator. Our Web and New Media Coordinator is responsible for KBOO's website and social media accounts. Applicants should have experience administering a CMS such as Drupal and experience administering a MySQL database, including backups and queries. For a complete job description and instructions on how to apply, visit kbu.fm slash employment. Applications are due by November 17th. KBU is an Affirmative Action and Equal Opportunity employer. No, 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 no.